What was the meaning and purpose of the Ten Plagues of Egypt? The Ten Plagues of Egypt, also known as the Ten Plagues, the Plagues of Egypt, or the Biblical Plagues, are described in Exodus 7-12. through The plagues were ten disasters sent upon Egypt by God to convince Pharaoh to free the Israelite slaves from the bondage and oppression they had endured in Egypt for 400 years. When God sent Moses to deliver the children of Israel from bondage in Egypt, he promised to show his wonders as confirmation of Moses' authority. This confirmation was to serve at least two purposes, to show the Israelites that the God of their fathers was alive and worthy of their worship, and to show the Egyptians that their gods were nothing. The Israelites had been enslaved in Egypt for about 400 years, and in that time had lost faith in the God of their fathers. They believed he existed and worshipped him, but they doubted that he could or would break the yoke of their bondage. The Egyptians, like many pagan cultures, worshipped a wide variety of nature gods and attributed their powers to the natural phenomena they saw in the world around them. There was a god of the sun, of the river, of childbirth, of crops, etc. Events like the annual flooding of the Nile, which fertilized their croplands, were evidences of their god's powers and goodwill. When Moses approached Pharaoh, demanding that he let the people go, Pharaoh responded by saying, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I know not the Lord, neither will I let Israel go. Thus began the challenge to show whose God was more powerful. The first plague, turning the Nile to blood, was a judgment against Apis, the god of the Nile, Isis, goddess of the Nile, and Canum, guardian of the Nile. The Nile was also believed to be the bloodstream of Osiris, who was reborn each year when the river flooded. The river, which formed the basis of daily life and the national economy, was devastated as millions of fish died in the river and the water was unusable. Pharaoh was told, By this you will know that I am the Lord. The second plague, bringing frogs from the Nile, was a judgment against Hecate, the frog-headed goddess of birth. Frogs were thought to be sacred and not to be killed. God had the frogs invade every part of the homes of the Egyptians, and when the frogs died, their stinking bodies were heaped up in offensive piles all throughout the land. The third plague, gnats, was a judgment on Set, the god of the desert. Unlike the previous plagues, the magicians were unable to duplicate this one and declared to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. The fourth plague, flies, was a judgment on Uachit, the fly god. In this plague, God clearly distinguished between the Israelites and the Egyptians, as no swarms of flies bothered the areas where the Israelites lived. Okay, good morning. Good to see you, the 11 o'clock service. Good to have you guys joining us in person, online. Some of you guys are joining on Facebook, some of you on YouTube, some of you on our website, truelifenj.com. Either way, however you're joining us, good to have you. I'm Pastor Chris. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We're in part seven of our series through the book of Exodus. That video, we cut it short. We'll be posting it tomorrow to our website under the Exodus reading plan. And throughout the week, there's little, little video commentaries that will be put up there on the website so you can follow along in the reading. Pastor Rigo's got midweek videos going out. So just, uh, we, we're just doing this big campaign because we're not covering every verse in the sermons, but we're covering everything through the combination of reading and sermon. Right now, as you saw in that video, we're in the middle of studying the plagues. There's 10 plagues that God brought on Egypt for different reasons, but the biggest of all was to show that the false gods, the gods that the Egyptians worshipped, were no gods at all. There was one true God, the God of Israel, Isaac and Jacob, the God of, 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 uh, who, who sent his son into the world through the nation of Israel, the promised Messiah, Jesus. That's the one true God. Uh, and so as we move towards Good Friday and Easter, we're going to see the parallels between uh, the Passover and the exodus out of Egypt and the cross of Jesus and his resurrection. And on Easter, we're going to conclude this first major section of exodus. Then we'll take a few weeks off, and then we'll pick it back up in the next major section at the end of April. Sound good? Sound like a plan? Thanks, Bill. Thanks, buddy. Now, today, we're talking about true versus counterfeit repentance. True versus counterfeit repentance. Repentance means to do a 180. You're going this way, and you go, ah, going back. You're, you're, you're thinking one thing, and you change your mind. You're trusting in one thing, and you decide to trust more fully in God. 
you're chasing one thing and you're turning to more passionately pursue God. That's what repentance is about. And here's the thing. There is a kind of behavior. There are words that you can say that appear on the surface to be true repentance. And it's not. And you might not be able to tell by looking at someone. But in time, just like a counterfeit dollar bill, in time with the right eyes, the right person can tell, mm, there's a counterfeit there. And our God has the right eyes and he can tell. When something's true and when something's counterfeit, repentance. Or anybody ever have uh, one of those wax bowls of fruit on their living room table? I've been at people's homes and I've been fooled. I'm especially drawn to red apples. I've got a thing for red apples. So I go, oh, is this? And then it's, uh, it's empty. It's empty. It looks good on the outside and it's empty on the inside. We don't want to be people who look good on the outside, say the right things, talk the talk about changing behavior, but on the inside, underneath the surface, it's empty, it's hollow, it's not real. We don't want to do that. So as we cover Exodus chapters 9 and 10 today, as we do a flyover of these two chapters, as we look at more plagues, we're going to talk about this, and then we're going to end with three points about what true repentance means. And we're going to ask the Spirit of God to move in our hearts and give us men, women, older, younger, kids, teenagers, who's ever watching, who's ever here. I'm believing that you're here and God's going to do something in your heart. He's going to grant, the Bible says he grants repentance. He gives us the ability to repent. And I'm going to pray, Lord Jesus, that you would do that today, that you would grant repentance to us. Where we need to change our minds about who you are, where we need to stop trusting in one thing and trust more fully in you, where we need to stop taking matters into our own hands and, and, and put our lives into your hands, that you would show us and you would give us the power to do it. Where marriages need repentance, where, where, where relationships between parents and children need repentance, you would grant it. Amen. Let it be done. All right. <clears throat> now, if you remember, we left off last week with plague number four, where God started to draw a distinction between the people of Israel and the, the, the Egyptians with the, the swarm of biting insects that came. Remember that? Where God started to draw a distinction where the people of Israel who were living in the land of Goshen were no longer affected by this plague. That's going to continue. God is showing. I am the God of these people. They are mine. And I'm going to protect them. Chapter 9 starts off with the plague of livestock. God brings a plague on the livestock. We're actually not going to read these verses. I just want to uh, summarize what happened. God sent Moses to warn Pharaoh. If you don't let my people go, I'm going to kill your livestock. I'm going to kill the cattle, the horses. Everything that you put, that's wealth. That was the wealth in ancient times, your livestock. That was your money, that was your cash, that was your 401k. This was God warning Pharaoh, I am going to bring the market to a crash. I'm going to topple Lehman Brothers, right? I'm going to bring it down. I'm going to end your wealth. And Pharaoh didn't repent, he didn't turn, and so God did it. I want to show you a little clip. Just a couple snapshots of what it may have been like. One day they go to bed and they've got their livestock. The next day they wake up and they're dead. It's like, what happened to our livestock? God happened. Not only was their wealth tied up in their livestock, but there, there were gods that were depicted as cattle. The goddess Hathor and the, the god Apis. These were two Two gods that they worshipped, they were depicted as being cattle, so cattle was seen as sacred, and so God was striking a blow. That's what the word plague means. He was striking a blow to those two gods. 
In fact, the goddess Hathor was seen uh, as the, kind of represented the, the mother of, of Pharaoh. He was kind of called the son of Hathor. And God was striking a blow to Hathor, showing, no, 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 Hathor ain't no real god. And again, God protected the animals that belonged to the Israelites, so their livestock didn't die. They still had them. Now that rolls into plague number six, the plague of boils, which we're going to pick up in verse 8 of chapter 9. If you're following along here. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from a furnace and have Moses toss it into the air in the presence of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over the whole land of Egypt and festering boils will break out on people and animals throughout the land. So they did it. They took this suit, they threw it out, and it, it became boils on people's bodies. People and animals broke out in boils. It, it, it even went on to say that the, the officials in Pharaoh's court couldn't stand before him because they had boils on their legs and on their feet. This was an attack on the gods over healing and medicine and disease that the Egyptians believed in. This was God flexing his muscles and saying, those are no gods at all. And the sorcerers who supposedly have access to these gods and power, they don't have power over sickness and disease. Only I do. And then verse 12 says something very curious after this plague. It says this, The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said to Moses. So this is the first time where it says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. In, in chapter 4 of Exodus, God said to Moses, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. You're going to go into Egypt. You're going to warn him. He's not going to listen. I'm going to harden his heart. But up to this point, between chapter 4 and chapter 9 here, it has said that with each plague, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. It said Pharaoh hardened his own heart or his heart was hardened. This is the first time where it actually uh, gives the credit, if you will, to God doing the hardening of his heart. Now, how do, you, how do you reconcile that? Did Pharaoh have free will and did he harden his own heart or did God harden his heart? This is a big question. People have debated this. They've tried to reconcile the two. They've tried to explain it. Different scholars have different explanations for it. Um, I don't think we'll ever fully understand it until we're in heaven with God, right? One of the questions we can ask him. Um, but here's, here's my understanding and here's my stab at it. Um, we're all born with a hard heart. Naturally, we have a hard heart. Now, babies, they look cute and cuddly, so you can't tell that hard heart until they're, what, 15 months, right? Especially two. Especially two. <laughs> but the hard heart's there. We're all born with that natural bent to rebel against God. I don't need you, God. I'm going to go my own way. I want what I want. And God comes after us. God's goal is to draw all men to himself. He's coming after us. And he uses all kinds of things to soften our hearts towards him. And when we resist him, when we push against him, our hearts get hardened. That's what happens. We, we rebel against him. We say, no, I don't need you. And our hearts harden. We're hardening our hearts. And at some point, Romans chapter 1 talks about this, the passive wrath of God. At some point, God sometimes says about people, okay, fine. You go your way. You do your thing. You want to rebel against me? Go ahead. Go ahead. I'm going I'm to let you raise your fist at me and do the hardening. He, he, in, a, in, in a sense, it's solidifying the hardening that we are choosing to have towards him. It's been said that the same sun that softens the wax hardens the clay. The same God who comes after us, for some people, we bow our knees and we soften our hearts and we say, man, how could I? How could I be running from you all this time? And for others of us, we get more hard-hearted. Leave me alone. Leave me alone. I said I don't want you. I said I don't need you. I said I don't believe in you. And in Pharaoh's case, it seems like God is giving Pharaoh over to his desires. You want to rebel, go ahead. And he has a purpose in that. And we're going to get to that in a moment. It's a scary purpose. Next plague is the plague of hail. Look at verse 13 of chapter 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. 
Let my people go so that they may worship me. We talked about that last week. God redeems us to worship him. Not just for the sake of being free, but to worship him. And then verse 14, um, verse 14, zero in on verse 14. Look what it says. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you. And against your officials and your people. In other words, I have not yet sent the full force of my plagues against you. The Nile River turning to blood, no, that wasn't the full force of my plagues. The frogs overtaking the land, nope, that wasn't it. The gnats, nope. The swarms of biting insects, nope, that wasn't it. Killing your cattle, nope, that wasn't it. The boils, nope. I've been playing lightly here. I've been, I've been, I've been you know, playing with kid gloves here. I've been taking it easy on you, is what God's saying. But the full force, the full force is yet to come. And then look what, why, why, why is the full force coming? So that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. You see that? So that you will know there is no one like me in all the earth, so that you will know that no God can match me. I want you to know this, that there's only one God like me. God is about us seeing him as God. And there's nothing wrong with God in wanting us to see him as God. That's not out of uh, insecurity on his part. That's out of love for us. He wants us to put our hope where our hope should be put. In the only God who can sustain. He doesn't want us putting our hope in false gods like the Nile River. Or Hathor. Or Apis. Or any false religion. Buddha. He doesn't want that. Is that exclusive? Yes. Why is he exclusive? Because he loves us. And he doesn't want us putting our hope in something that will let us down, that cannot save us. If we put our hope in our wealth, if we put our hope in our careers, if we put our hope in our spouse, God forbid, our kids, anybody, it all lets us down. God says, I am the only God because he loves us. Just like as a dad, I want my girls to know, you've got one dad. Is it, is it exclusive for me to say, don't treat all men on the street as your dad? Yes. Is it loving? Yes. Yes. Don't treat any old guy on the street as your dad. That's ridiculous. Would it be tolerant or, or, or um, you know, equitable of me to say that? Maybe in today's culture they'd celebrate that. But no, that's not loving. At the least, it would dilute my kids' relationship with me and the quality of it that they should have with me. And at the worst, they're going home with strangers. They're running into the arms of strangers. It could be it's risky, dangerous. Right? Amen? Dads, God loves us too much not to be exclusive. He w loves us too much not to want us to say, this isn't God, this isn't God. There's, no, no, there's not a bunch of ways to God. There's one true God. He loves us too much for that. Verse 15. I got to get back on track here. Verse 15. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. I could have done away with you. I could have made this thing shorter. I, this thing could have been taken care of a long time ago, God's saying. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Again, he wants his name proclaimed in all the earth. And how's he going to do it? Look again at verse 16. I've raised you up for this very purpose. Who's he talking to? Pharaoh. I've raised you, Pharaoh, up to rebel against me, to resist me, to be my arch enemy. So I might show my power. Remember before it says he hardened his heart? God finally said, all right, Pharaoh, you want to do your own thing? You want to rebel against me? Okay, fine. I have a purpose in that. In other words, instead of God being glorified by Pharaoh repenting and getting to his knees and saying, okay, I trust in you, God's like, instead I'm going to glorify you by allowing you to be the arch enemy that rails and rails and rails against me 
until I finally crush you. And then the earth will hear about it. Nations will hear about it. And they do. We know historically. The nations heard about what happened in Egypt. The Philistines were scared of the Israelites because they heard about how their God messed with the gods of the Egyptians. That's what God's about. He wants this compelling story for people to tell. The Israelites sang. You know, they, they, you know, they, they wrote songs. We have psalms about this in our Bible about God crushing the Egyptians. We have songs about that. They were told to tell their children about what God did to the Egyptians. They were dismissing their kids to their kids' classes to hear about what God did to the Egyptians. God wanted his stories to be told, and he was using Pharaoh as an arch enemy to make that story more compelling. I see it like this. My, 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 my brain thinks in terms of movies. It's like God was saying to Pharaoh, you are going to be the Biff Tannen that will make my Back to the Future movie that much more compelling. Every good movie needs a bad guy. You are going to be the Ivan Drago that makes the Rocky Four that much more compelling. You are going to be the Joker that makes the Dark Knight movie that much more compelling. That's what God was saying to Pharaoh. Let's keep going. Verse 17. You still set yourself against my people. God was saying to Moses, or through Moses to Pharaoh, you'll not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded till now. And then God gives a little mercy here. He says, give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter because the hail will fall on every person and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field and they will die. So the hailstorm's coming. Bring, your, bring every person and animal in or, or they're going to die. Like, I'm giving you a warning. Get them in, get them in shelter. And to, 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 to summarize, God brought it. He brought the, he brought the, the plague of hail. It was hail mixed with fire. It was crazy. In a land that only got two inches of rain per year. That's what they were used to seeing. I was like, it's unheard of. Hail that would kill people. This was, a, this was a plague, a strike against the sky goddess Nut. It was also a plague against the uh, gods over certain crops. Like Set and Isis. A little clip here, just to give you a quick picture, a few seconds long. There's Pharaoh looking at the hailstorm. That's from the movies Gods and Kings. I don't necessarily recommend it for its biblical integrity there, uh, but... Uh, a couple of those plague snapshots give you a feeling of what it might have been like for the Egyptians to go through that. And Pharaoh, after that, look what he does in verse 26. I'm sorry, verse 27. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, this time I've sinned. Now what he, what, what he thought about the previous times, well, I don't know. <laughs> right? He's like, all right, this time I've sinned. The Lord is in the right. I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. Now, Pharaoh has finally humbled himself, hasn't he? He's finally contrite. He's finally repenting. He's apologizing to God. He's confessing his sins. Or is he? On the surface, it looks really good. Like when a lot of us, we go through a difficult, painful time and we say, I want to change. I really do. I'm so sorry, God. I really do want to change, finally. Moses had discernment here. Look what Moses says. He says, okay, when I've gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. Again, this is the purpose, so that you will know the earth is the Lord's. But then look at verse 30. But I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord your God. It's like, I'm hearing you say the right things. But I know that in your heart, it's not true godly sorrow. It's, it's selfish sorrow. You're acknowledging that God has power. You want his help. 
stopping that plague. But you don't want to worship him. You don't want to surrender to him. You don't want to give him your life. You want the pain to stop. You want the discomfort to stop. That's where it's selfish sorrow. I'm sorry because this is uncomfortable. Because my kingdom is being threatened, can you please stop the the storm so that my kingdom can be restored? And God's saying, I want your kingdom toppled so that you can live for my kingdom. That's not what Pharaoh wants. Selfish sorrow is, I'm sorry, please bless my kingdom now. Godly sorrow is, how could I want to live for any other kingdom than yours? How can I belittle the glory of such a glorious God? How can I make it such a small deal? How can I see you as such a small thing, God? I am so sorry for that. Selfish sorrow wants circumstances to get easier so that we can have our peace and joy restored. Godly sorrow says my peace and joy is not in circumstances getting easier. It's in resting in who God is no matter what happens circumstantially. That's godly sorrow. I love this um, picture that the uh, Bible teacher Vody Bachman uses an analogy that uh, I heard, so this isn't mine, um, that I love. He said, imagine, imagine two scenes, right? One scene is a picture of a woman running to a police officer, okay? On her face is terror. And in the caption underneath it reads, help, I'm being mugged. Okay, so she's running to a police officer because she's running from somebody mugging her. And she wants him to perform a function to protect her from the mugger. Now imagine another scene. Another young woman running to the police officer. On her face is delight, smile, gladness. And in the caption underneath, it reads, Daddy. One of them is running to the police officer to perform a function, help me stop this mugger, which we should do when we're getting mugged, okay? But the other one is running to him because of who he is to her. Daddy. Relationship. Pharaoh is running to God because he's really running from a storm. Stop this pain. He doesn't want a relationship with him. He doesn't want to bow to him. He's not running to him because of who he is. He's running to him so that he can perform a function. Stop the hail. And that's what Moses was able to discern. You don't really want God for God. You're running from something else. You're not running to God to get God. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. Many of us do the same thing, right? We run to God. We come back to church. We're going through a hard time. I'll go back to church. Okay, God, I'll, you know, make all these promises. I promise, I promise, I promise, I promise. Because we're really running from some kind of pain. And God blesses that. Circumstantially, he, he stopped the storm. And that's the Sometimes a dangerous thing. We, we pray to God, can you take away this pain? Oftentimes God's a good God. He's a loving, he'll stop the storm in our life. But the danger is we may end up like Pharaoh did at the end of the story. Drowning in the Red Sea. If we're not running to God for God. And we just want him to bless us temporarily. He might bless us temporarily. But in the end, we don't get him Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. I know this is a very encouraging message. <laughs> um, turn the page to chapter 10. Now we get into the plague of locusts. Plague number 8 in chapter 10. Is that confusing? You can do it. And this is week 7. <laughs> Verse 8. Then Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. Go! Worship the Lord your God, he said, but tell me who will be going. Moses answered, we're going to go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, and with our flocks and herds, because we are to celebrate a festival to the Lord. Check out what, Moses, uh, what Pharaoh says in verse 10. The Lord be with you if I let you go, along with your women and children. Like, explanation point. Like, yeah, right. That's not going to happen. Clearly, you're bent on evil. Verse 11. No, have only the men go and worship the Lord, since that's what you have been asking for. So Pharaoh, 
It's like, okay, I'm ready to make a deal. I'm ready to negotiate. You can have the men. The men can go do their men, men thing. But I'm keeping the women and children. You're not going, you're not relocating here. You're keeping your women and children with me. I'm still going to exercise control. But I'm going to give you a little bit of what you're asking for. You, you guys can go do your, 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 your men's event out there in the, in the wilderness. You can do that. That's how much you can do. I'll, I'll meet you halfway. That's what he thinks. That's what he thinks of God. That he can negotiate with God. That God will compromise. That God's up there going, well, I guess if, I'll, uh, a little bit's better than nothing. I'll take it, Pharaoh. He still doesn't get who the God of Israel is. Remember back in chapter 5, we covered this two weeks ago, where Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should listen to him? He still doesn't know who the Lord is. He thinks he can negotiate. He thinks he's like another, you know, just some business person. Like he can use some tactics that he read about in the book Art of the Deal. Right? <laughs> some of you got that joke. So he can't negotiate. Moses goes out. Long story short, he stretches out his hand. Here comes another plague. This one is the plague of locusts. They come in. They destroy any crops that were remaining after the hail. Some of the later crops like wheat and rye maybe weren't touched by the hail. Some commentators speculate. And so here come the locusts devouring whatever was left. Let me give you a little, quick little clip give you a picture of what this might have been like. Locusts eating everything. And that brings us to plague number nine. Darkness. Verse 21 of chapter 10 says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. Verse 22, So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or move about for three days, yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. So this was a, a supernatural darkness. This wasn't a kind of darkness where it's like, you know, maybe parts of the world at certain times of the, of the year, oh, it's dark for longer and we can light a match, light a candle. For some reason, somehow, God supernaturally, apparently supernaturally prevented them from lighting candles and torches because they couldn't move about for three days. They couldn't, they, they, they didn't have anything. No, no artificial forms of light. God prevented it. And remember what it said. Look again at uh, verse uh, 21. Darkness that can be felt. It was a supernatural, thick kind of darkness that could be felt. This was attack, an attack on the sun god, Ray, who Pharaoh himself supposedly represented. In other words... What I think is going on here is that the noose is getting tighter and tighter around Pharaoh. It's, it's, it's starting to hit closer and closer to home for Pharaoh. And next week, the 10th plague, we'll see that it hits right at his heart, right in his, the center of his home. Verse 24, Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky. Total darkness came, it happened. Yet all the Israelites, look, all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. God was separating. My light's here. My presence is here with you. My presence is not here with you. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go worship the Lord. Look what he says. All right, even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your, your flocks and, and herds behind. Okay, I'll give you a little bit more. Before he was like, you know, I'll give you 50% of what you're asking for. Now he's like, I'll give you 75%. But I'm still going to cling to that 25%. I'm still clinging to the livestock. And Moses responds to Pharaoh's pathetic attempt to exercise control. Moses responds by saying, you must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Remember, the purpose is worship. Free my people so they may worship me. And then look at verse 26. I love this. Our livestock too must go with us. Not a hoof is 
to be left behind. Not a hoof. Nothing is to be left. You get nothing, Pharaoh. God's like, you are not keeping anything. You have no control here. I am not allowing you to hold on to anything. There is no compromise. There is no negotiation. There is no bartering. You have no leverage. Absolutely none. That's what God's saying to Pharaoh. Nothing. And then verse 27. This is where we're going to end. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. In verse 29, just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. And that was it. The final warning. That was it. No more. No more warnings to come. Now, next week, comes the final plague. The end. We'll cover it next week as we prepare our hearts for Good Friday. But what I want to do right now, I want to call the band up and I want us to spend some time reflecting on, we're going to sing a song called Wonderful Cross. I, I want us to reflect on three things, I told you, three things that I believe true repentance means that I see in these passages, in this section. Three things. <clears throat> You can write these down if you want. You can take a photo of the screen if you want. If you're watching online, you can copy and paste to your notes. But more important than that is that you would say, God, is this true of me? Do I need, do, do I need to take this to heart? Number one, true repentance means... We stop playing games with an all-powerful God. We stop playing games. We stop doing any hint of what Pharaoh was doing. Whatever smaller scale we live at compared to Pharaoh, we all have a tendency to play the same kind of games. To hold on to certain areas of our lives and to say, nah, I don't think God really cares that much about this. Finances, this is the one area where I'm not ready to give him control over. I'm going to exercise control. But I, I, I sure do. I am generous with my time. Right, a little barter. I give a lot of my time, so I'm going to cling to my finances. I'm really kind at home and at church with my church friends. And yeah, maybe I'm a little ruthless with my business practices. Maybe I cut corners at work, but you got to in the business world. Right? Religious games. I, I can compartmentalize a little bit. Separate things out. Okay, God, I'll give you this. Hold on to that. Pastor Shea was telling me he, he knew somebody who said to him, to justify a particular addiction, said, this is my only vice. This is my only vice. Now, we may not say that, but how often do we think that, huh? This is, yeah, I'm a little codependent. I'm a, I'm a little jealous. It's okay. Yeah, I have a, I'm holding on to forgiveness. I'm, I'm withholding forgiveness. You know, it's nothing compared to so-and-so. We did a series back in 2000, I think it was 14, before most of you were here. It's on our website. It's called Respectable Sins. It's the sins that church people think are okay. They wink at. Eh, not a big deal. I'll withhold forgiveness from my spouse. At least I'm not cheating on them. Right? I don't have a drug problem. I just I have a problem with envy. Those types of things. As if God is like, oh, okay. Yeah, you can hold on to. No, God's saying not a single hoof, not a single area, not a single struggle are you to think that it's okay with me. I want you free. That's because God wants us free from it all. 
He wants us free from it. He wants us His. No, no, no area does He want us thinking that we have control over. Why? Because He loves us. And when we think we can exercise control over something, and we think, ah, that's okay. No. There's areas of my life where sometimes God shows me, and it's like, God, I want, I want to give this to you. And it's a struggle. Because it doesn't feel like it's that big of a deal. I want it to feel like a big deal. And that brings us to number two. That brings us to number two. We mourn over our sin before a holy God. Now this might be hard for some of y'all to hear. You're watching online. Might be hard for some of you guys to hear. The plagues that God brought on Egypt are pictures of his wrath on our sin. It's what our sin deserves. The worst of those plagues, the worst of what we see in this world, is what our sin deserves right now, all the time, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And it is God's mercy that is holding it back. But that's what our sin before a holy God deserves. That's what the Bible says. I know some of us are like, I don't like that. Yeah, neither did Pharaoh. But here's the thing. In the end, our sin will get, it will get the wrath of God one of two ways. Either at the great final judgment, where we're, we're, we think we can stand before God on our own, and we've got to face the plagues, so to speak, of His wrath, or we put our trust in Jesus who took the wrath of God in our place, absorbed it for us, got on a cross for us. The plagues of God were poured out on Jesus at the cross of Calvary. And that should lead us. If God himself had to come pay for our sin in that way, it should make us go, wow. These aren't just minor coping mechanisms of mine. This is sin that is based on pride and rebellion and this, this, this desire to live for myself and by myself, for myself. God, I want it out of me. I want to mourn over it. I want to feel it. Some of us are scared to feel the weight of our sin because we think that leads to shame and self-condemnation. It's actually the opposite. It's actually the opposite. I want to show you a scripture from the book of James where it says this. Verses uh, 8 to 10 of, of chapter 4. It says, Come near to God and He will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So he's speaking to folks who are living sort of for God, sort of for the things of the world. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will lift you up. In the end, the goal is to be lifted up by the Lord, restored, to stand redeemed. But we've got to feel the weight of our sin first, to, to quickly glance past it. This is what many of us do. We go, yeah, 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 I screwed up, but nobody's perfect. Anyway, can we move on, please? Can we stop talking about my issues? Huh? What about so-and-so? Nobody's perfect. It's just a little bit of an anger problem. It's just a little bit of a jealousy problem. Why is everybody making such a big deal? It's nothing compared to so-and-so. And God wants us to feel the weight of it. Because when we can look at it as a sin against a holy God, you know what that does? It frees us from shame. Because once we see what God sees, we don't care what other people see. It's when we try to move quickly past our sin and our issues and not think about it that actually shame builds. We could become more and more scared of, of looking at it ourselves and other people finding out. But when we stop and go, you know what? I want to feel this, Lord. If I snap at my wife one day, I can go to her and apologize and say, babe, I'm sorry. I was, I was in a bad mood. I'm sorry for snap. I, I took it out on you. She'll forgive me, right? But there is a sin 
beneath that sin that I want to get to. I want to go back to the Lord and go, God, where did that come from? Like there was something in me in that moment that made me snap at her. I was trying to grasp for control in that moment. You know what that was? That was me saying, you're not God. You're not in control. I'm going to be in control right now. I want that out of me. If that's still in me, I want that out of me. Jesus paid not only for our sins to be forgiven, but for us to be new creations. And we have the old residue of the old us that still remains. And God says, I want that out. Put it to death. Mourn, weep, wail, humble yourself, and I'll lift you up. We need to feel it. This is a season of Lent. It's meant to reflect on Jesus' sacrifice, how far he went to pay for our sin. We should feel that. Do we feel it? Are we focusing on it? Are we getting the weight of it? In an effort to feel the weight of it, we're doing a church-wide fast Thursday and Friday, April 1st and 2nd. As we head into Good Friday, so we've got a bigger fast happening for our building, a 44-day thing where somebody different is fasting every day between March 15th and April 30th. And that's to pray for this building campaign. And we've got different people signed up. And thank you for those of you signing up. But the Bible talks about fasting for different reasons. Sometimes it's for miraculous provision. Sometimes for wisdom. And sometimes it's, God, I want to feel the weight of my sins so that I can have, by your power, strongholds ripped out of me. And that's where we're interrupting this building fast to do two days as a church, Thursday, Friday, April 2nd, to go to God, say, Jesus, you died so I can be free of this jealousy. I want it out. I want to, I, I want to want it out. You died so I could be free from this bad temper. I want to want it out. You died so I could be free from this codependency. I want to want it out. You died so I could be free from this bad attitude towards my parents. I want to want it out. You died so I can stop withholding forgiveness from my spouse. I want to want it out of me. Help me. As much as I want food right now, I want more for this to be ripped out of me. And that leads us to, once we feel that, that leads us to number three. And that is that we cling to the mercy and grace of a loving God. When we feel the weight of our sin, we go, oh, it's still there. Then we run back to the cross. And you know what that does? We get to celebrate. Oh, you're so gracious. We don't understand, I should say, we don't appreciate God's grace. Even Christians, right? We trust in Him when we're younger and then we move on. And then we forget. The good news of His grace gets old, doesn't it? You know why? Because we have a tendency to focus on other people's sins. I can't believe so-and-so is still struggling with that. Can you believe it? Can you pray for them? We do have church stuff. Instead of, if we can mourn over what still remains in our own hearts, it brings us back to the cross and go, man, thank you for paying for that too. Thank you for your grace over that too. There's a saying Sorry. There's a saying. It's okay to not be okay. Anybody ever hear it? It's not true all the time. It's not true of you. On your own. It's not okay for you not to be okay. And guess what? You are not okay. Bad news. It's not okay for you to be in the middle of the ocean and not know how to swim if you're on your own in the middle of the ocean. It's not okay to not know how to swim. It's only okay to not know how to swim in the middle of the ocean if you've got a life raft to cling to. And it's only okay for you not to be okay spiritually if you are clinging to the life raft that is Jesus. That's the only, that's the only way to stand before a holy God. And praise God that he came down here to be our life raft. Because we can't swim to Him. We can't climb up to Him. We can't get to heaven by comparing ourselves to the next guy and saying, well, at least I don't do drugs like he does. I just struggle with jealousy. No, Jesus had to come. He had to die. But He says, anybody, 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 anybody can come to me. Anybody. Doesn't no matter, doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter your family background. Doesn't matter what religions you've been practicing in the past. You can come to me and you can freely and forever be forgiven, be saved, be recreated by my spirit, born again, declared righteous, no condemnation, 
ever. That's what we get. So as we end, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. First of all, can we stand? If you're able to physically to stand, even if you're in your living room watching from home, stand. We are embodied creatures physically. What we do with our bodies says something about where our hearts are at. So three things that I just, three points. Surrender, mourn, and cling. (laughs) Surrender, mourn, and cling. Receive His grace. I don't know where you're at, but chances are you need to hear one of those, or maybe all three of those in that sequence. Today, you need to surrender. There's something in your life that you know you've been keeping from God. And you need to stop playing the games and surrender. Okay, God, this is, this is yours. From this day forward, uh, I want you to go to work on it. It doesn't mean I'm going to be perfect, but I'm surrender. You can go to work on this. It doesn't matter how, how much you flip my life upside down. I don't want to be in control of this anymore. Or maybe it's mourning over something. God, I want to feel the weight of this. I know this is in there. But it doesn't bother me that much. I'm more bothered by other people's sins. I want to be bothered by my own. Can you help me feel that? Oh, he'll, he'll be faithful to help you feel that. Or, or maybe it's coming to Jesus, to the cross of Jesus, for the first time perhaps. Maybe you've never trusted in Jesus. You grew up in a home. Your parents taught you about Jesus. You believed in him. You acknowledge him. Just like Pharaoh acknowledged God in some way. But you've never surrendered to him. You never bowed your knee. And maybe today's a day where you go, okay, Jesus, you died for me. I need you. I need a life raft. And if that's you, I want to invite you to join us next week. As a few people are declaring publicly, my life is, I belong to Jesus because he paid for me. I am paid in full because of what Jesus did on the cross. Maybe you are a Christian. Maybe you've been baptized before and you've just drifted away because you've gotten more mature in your faith. And so as you got more mature, you got more self-righteous. And the grace of Jesus became old news and now you're just bothered by everybody else. You're just always bothered by somebody. And that's what God wants you to mourn over, that critical spirit that you got. You need to feel it. And you need to come to the cross of Jesus and say, forgive me for that critical spirit. You died for that. Forgive me, free me from that. Free me from my self-righteousness. I don't know where you're at, but God does. Ask him to show you. Let's sing this song and we're going to have an extended time, but we'll just start by letting God speak to us for a moment.